in Mark. Um, last time we were in Mark, we read that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem um, by way of the never-ridden donkey. It was an intense scene. It was intense timing, uh, praising, shouting hosannas, people throwing their coats down, their branches down, uh, giving Jesus this grand kingdom entrance. Many people would have been there more than normal because it was Passover. And in verse 11 of chapter 11, Mark gives us this detail of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, then heads back to Bethany. And then in verse 12 of chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples return to Jerusalem, in particular to the temple in Jerusalem. And along the way, he has a conversation with a fig tree. And this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 11, in chapter 11. And the title of the message is called, The Temple and a Tree. But before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the music, for the musicians, for Stacy, Dwayne in the back, making sure the slides get up so we can sing the words. Thank you for the fellowship and the friendships that we have when we come into this room. Thank you for the new members and just continue thanking you and thanking you. And God, this morning right now, as we open your word, we do thank you for your word to us. That was written by you to us so that we can know you and know your ways to become more like Jesus. And so God, this morning as we bow our heads right now, I pray that you would find us in a posture and a position to receive from you all that we're supposed to receive to you, from you by your Spirit, that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, and that you would grant us by your Spirit the courage to respond to that truth. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear from the Lord and respond to him this morning? In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to pick up in verse 11 and go through verse 22. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went over. He went to see if perhaps it would have anything on it. And he came to it and found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Verse 15, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Verse 19, And when evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Very interesting story and scene in Jesus' life, and there's a few aspects of this passage that we will look at. And the first is this, the man 
a tree in the temple. Now, verse 12 ends with interesting three words. It says that he became hungry. Have you ever thought about that? And I'm not sure why these three words kind of leapt off the page at me, but I couldn't help thinking about Jesus being hungry. He was the same man who fed 5,000 people and 4,000 people. And now we see the words, he's hungry. I think it shows us something significant, both about Jesus and about us. Have you ever thought about how big God is? I mean, you think about the bigness of God, and you think about the planets, and you think about the solar systems, and the galaxies, and the sun, and how he holds it all together. And then when we start thinking about how big God is, sometimes it can also to lead us to think how far away God is, or how far away he may seem. That this God who's so big could never know the details of my life, too far away to be in touch with my pain or my loss, He's too much other to understand me or relate to me. But with these three words that he became hungry, it gives us insight for us to never doubt that Jesus can sympathize and empathize with us. Because Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. He had a body and function just like you and me, except that he didn't sin. He could rejoice and weep and suffer and pain. And remember Matthew chapter 8? What was he doing in the boat of Simon Peter? He was sleeping. Some people say, be like Jesus, take naps. <laughs> when he was tired, he slept. When his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11 had died, Jesus wept. Jesus was 100% divine, but he was also 100% human. He was the perfect man. And the amazing thing is that Jesus came to us in a vulnerable condition. Meaning this, if he was tempted, he felt the pull. If he was cut, he bled. If he was hit, he bruised. If he was rejected, he felt the emotional pain. If he fell, he got hurt. If he hadn't eaten, he got hungry. It was possible for him to die. And as we will see, he also got angry. Jesus was 100% God, 100% divine, and 100% human. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of deity dwelt in him in bodily form. And Philippians 2, that God emptied himself and came to us in the form of a servant. How awesome it is to think that Jesus was God and human. The one who made the heavens and earth and all that it contains, Jesus became flesh. Now it's interesting that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he has a conversation with a fig tree and the fig tree listens. Just like the winds and the waves, the fig tree listens. And we'll look more about the interaction of the fig tree and its implications in just a minute. But for now, I want to stay focused on Jesus and his humanity and his anger. I think if we imagine and examine the life of Jesus in the Gospels, most would agree that Jesus and his wreaking havoc in the temple 
is his most impactful anger story. In fact, many people have heard this phrase. There is a righteous anger, and there's an unrighteous anger. You've heard it, right? Some of you have even said it. What does it really mean? Most of us would take that phrase to mean this, objectively. The implication is this. There is a time when the situation or circumstance permits, allows, or justifies someone to be angry. Or, there are times when the situation doesn't give that permission. In the first scenario, the permissive situation, a person can respond in anger, and that emotion or display of emotion is suitable or even expected. But in the second scenario, a person's display of anger or emotion is generally seen as irrational, or are they just having a bad day, or it's just a temper tantrum. But the overriding question is this. Who gets to decide? Which scenario is righteous or unrighteous? Now, we would all probably agree that Jesus' display of anger in the temple was a righteous anger. But why? Why was it a righteous anger? Well, for us to understand the anger of Jesus in the temple, we need to understand the situation of what was going on in the temple. What was happening that made Jesus so angry? In the temple, you have, as Mark says, two different people. You have the buyers and the sellers. Things were bought and things were sold. Now, remember, it was Passover, and many people were coming. In fact, double or triple the usual amount. And they were coming to Jerusalem, particularly to the temple, to bring their sacrifices to the temple. And the sale of sacrifices, the cows, the the goats, the doves, was carried out under the order of the high priests for the conveniences of the worshipers. For, For those who came from a long distance, it was much easier for you to buy your sacrifice in the temple than it was to bring it a long distance, and much cheaper. And for the buyer, buying an animal for the sacrifice in the temple would have also meant that your animal was approved by the high priest. So the selling of animals at the temple was partly for convenience, but the sellers had other motives. The operations of the sellers greatly increased the pockets of the high priest. And so these sellers, in order to set up a booth, paid the high priest in the temple a fee, a considerable fee, to have a booth there. And so the action of Jesus in verse 15 was a direct confrontation to the authority of the high priest. He says in verse 15, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were bullying and buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the rest and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, I want you to get this picture. Think about this picture of Jesus. Now, put yourself there in the temple and listen to John chapter 2's version of what happened. In the temple courts, he, Jesus, found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. 
Now, G- John shows Jesus having this m- emotional and passionate anger about his father's house, the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, when I was annoying, sometimes, um, my mom said to me one time, Matthew, go out and get a switch. How many of you kind of grew up with a switch? And I remember going out to get a switch and getting this big, leafy, dogwood switch that wouldn't hurt anybody. And I thought my mom was angry when I went out, but I realized how really angry she was when I came back in with that switch. Now, when I see this in John chapter 2, I picture Jesus with a cord and whip. I don't know what that looks like. That's a hard picture. Have you ever thought about what a passionate, angry Jesus with a cord of whip looks like? Because I grew up with the Sunday school picture of Jesus. The long flowing hair, the white with the blue sash and a lamb. Welcoming children and walking on water. That's not this Jesus. His emotion, his passion, his anger... And quite frankly, if we think about it long enough, it can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. What do you think the disciples were doing? It's the first time they'd ever seen Jesus like that. Where do you think they were? And just as a side note, they were probably with him, and it's probably safe to assume that Peter was with them, because later on they say, you were with him. Where would you have been? What would you have been thinking? Man, Jesus is going off on these people. Now, verse 16 says that there were money changers in there. Why would there be money changers? Remember, people are coming from all over the place. And the temple, every Jewish male had to give a temple tax. And it was a shekel, which was one day or one, um, about one day's wage. And it was called a temple tax. And they were coming from all over, so they had to exchange their currency for a shekel, a Jewish coin. And historians tell us that the exchange rate was anywhere between 20% to 300%. So this temple had become this big business. This buying, exchanging of money. It, It almost reminds me of an international airport. And where was it? The temple. The temple. In verse 16, Mark says another detail of the story, and he, Jesus, would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now, what is he talking about? Well, I think to show you this, I want to illustrate it by looking at this picture of the temple. Now, in Jesus' day, the temple was not just the building. The temple was this whole entire yellowish-orange area. Now, from the left side, where you see court of Gentiles, on the left side, my left, your left, and to the right side, was basically a shortcut. People would carry their merchandise or their, uh, their traveling um, items that they brought with them from out of town, and they would cut across the court of Gentiles because it was a shortcut. Instead of having to go all the way around, they just kind of cut through. It was a common practice, and walking around uh, made it more convenient but why was this so bad what was wrong with this why did this bother jesus that he wouldn't allow anybody 
with their merchandise to come through the, the temple area. The reason why is because this revealed the irreverence that was in the heart of the people of the temple. There was a lack of interest in the things of God. It was more about themselves, making it easier and convenient on themselves. Things that were set apart as holy were being treated as common. And they had lost their respect and place before God. Things like understanding that the temple is the place of worship. Do you think that's happening in our world today? That the things that God has set apart as holy is treated as common and with disrespect. Things like godly, godly integrity or godly character, relationships, marriages, holy matrimony. Set apart. We can see it all in our culture, in our lives, of this, this lack of interest that what God has determined holy, we are determining common. Now what's interesting is that sometimes, so the first time we see this in John's Gospel is that Jesus references God as Father. He said, this is my Father's house. And Jewish leaders were highly offended at this. Because it seemed too intimate. It seemed not formal enough. To them, it seemed like heresy. Listen to what it says in chapter 5, verse 18 of John. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is identifying with his father, and this is his father's house, and you and I are one father, so I'm taking this personal. This is my house too. The verbs are strong, drove, scattered, overturned. This word overturned, overthrew, speaks of a violence. This is not what Jesus did. He flipped the table. I would do it, but I don't want to take Michael's head off. <laughs> he flipped the table. It was violent. He was angry. And it begs the question to ask, is it okay to be angry? The answer is yes. Some anger is appropriate. One commentator said this, there are times... When the lack of anger at a great injustice shows a disengagement with reality. Think about this. Think about it backwards. What if Jesus walked in and saw all this happening and did nothing? And what if he looks at your life and my life and sees everything that's happening and does nothing? It's also been said that Anger reveals and shows what you really love. Jesus loved his father. He loved his father's house. And because he loved it so much, it made him angry when it wasn't being treated the way it needed to be treated. And he loves you and I too. Too much to leave us the way he found us.
Most scholars and historians and commentators agree that there's two basic reasons Jesus was angry. And try to understand and connect the parallels that may exist today. The first was this, ignoring and mishandling God's purposes and principles. Jesus entered the courtyard area. And think about what he saw. Goats and cows and doves. And think about what he smelled. When he was supposed to be smelling incense, which was a reminder of prayer. And think about what he heard, money changing here and bickering over here. When he needed to be hearing prayers and praise and worship. People scurrying around, trying to get from one place to the other in a fast way. Can you imagine trying to worship God in that setting? People were too distracted, too focused on other things. And what was supposed to be happening wasn't. And everything that wasn't supposed to be happening was. And isn't that really one of the main reasons that you and I get angry? Because the good or right thing that was intended to happen is replaced or traded for something less and worse? I believe it's the primary reason Jesus was angry. Because of people's mishandling of God's principles and purpose. And they were not getting a right view of God, which is the whole reason Jesus came. There's another reason Jesus was angry. People were being led away from a meaningful worship of God. Verse 17 says that even in the midst of all that's going on, he began to teach. Even in his passionate anger, Jesus taught. Now, what do you think he taught? I believe he probably taught on the divine purpose of the temple and how it's being perverted. And how is his teaching received? Luke 19, 48. For all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Part of his teaching came from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All the nations. Only time mentioned right here in Mark, all the nations, meaning that all are welcome to worship me. The temple was and is a representation of God's presence and faithfulness, and all are welcome to experience his love and forgiveness. And that couldn't happen with what was going on in the temple. So they were not only robbing people financially, they were robbing them from any meaningful worship and spiritually uh, robbing them. Just as a side note, remember what Jesus said just a few chapters back about people who were obstacles of them coming to Jesus? It would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. It reveals the passion and heart and anger of Jesus about who God is. So let me just stop here and ask a question. When's the last time you got angry? At first service, that was when the pen just dropped right there. When's the last time you got angry? Was it at someone? A situation? And would you and God say it was righteous? And the reason I put God in that question is because you and I are too quick, I think, to justify our anger. Because we live in this culture where I'm entitled to be mad. 
You offend me? You hurt me? I'm entitled to be angry. Do you generally control your anger, or does your anger control you? Do you even recognize your anger? I want to tell you a story. I was doing pre-marriage counseling with a couple a few years ago, several years ago, and we do personality tests. We check patterns of behavior, their thoughts and responses to different scenarios. And one of the areas tested is whether, <coughs> whether you had a tendency to be more laid back or whether you had a tendency to be more hostile. The soon-to-be husband scored high on hostile, and the soon-to-be wife scored high on being more laid back. And I asked if they thought the test results were accurate. The wife said, yeah, I think I'm generally more laid back and turn into her fiancé, and you're a little bit more hostile. And as soon as she said that, I could see this man's neck, like the veins and the redness just start to come up. And he looked at her in a stern voice and pointed a finger, and he said, I am not a hostile person. <laughs> hmm. So I thought, I'm going to have a little fun with this one. And I wanted to press it a little bit more to see where it would take us. So I asked, does the test result in your fiancé's agreement to that result make you feel upset? And I knew I had pushed a button. And he looked at me, and he looked at his fiancé and said, I only get hostile when she makes me hostile. <laughs> and her saying that I am a hostile person is one of the reasons... I'm hostile. <laughs> now, can we move on to the next area? I said, yeah, man, you're not, you're not hostile at all, man. You're good. <laughs> he had never stopped to acknowledge or even thought about his anger. Do we pay enough attention to our anger? Do you think about it? Do you consider it righteous or unrighteous or is it just common behavior it's just what i do it's just who i am do you think it matters to god and that's what we'll look at next anger and the believer often we equate with anger with going at going or being out of control but anger can take on a much much more subtle and powerful form than an outburst of being out of control It's important to understand that our approaches to anger are not inherited. They're learned. So our response can be altered. We learn about anger primarily two different responses. Modeling and reinforcement. Modeling is simply imitating a behavior that you've seen that you've seen your parents get angry and you respond that way. You've seen a coach. You've seen a teacher, an employer. You, you see anger and, and you model that anger. And so we can ask ourselves, is my anger modeled by Jesus? But there's another way we learn about anger, and that's reinforcement. And this one, I think, is much more subtle and much more manipulative. Because we respond in a way, in anger, to get you to change a behavior or a perception or a thought. 
Anger is generally experienced or expressed with great passion. I know when I get angry, my countenance changes. My language can change sharper, quicker. My tone changes. My voice goes up. My body speaks, and even my silence speaks when I'm angry. And when we're in that state of mind, when we're in that emotional, angry place, people are on the other side of that being affected and responsive to our anger. And so our anger, we learn to reinforce by what we can get out of you to respond. We see it in relationships, parents to children, The question we have to ask ourselves is, what does God say about anger? What does the Bible say to us about anger? Well, the first thing it says this, refrain from anger. David in the Old Testament wrote this, Psalm 37, 8, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves, it tends only to evil. And Paul in the New Testament wrote this, Ephesians 4, 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, when I read those words, you may think like I think, yeah, right, how in the world am I supposed to put off anger in the culture that I live in? In this world, with the government, with the economy, how am I supposed to refrain from anger? With my family, with my health stuff, with my marriage. Obviously, David or Paul, who wrote those words, did not live with me in my house. They didn't drive 278. But here's the principle we have to hang on to. If the Bible says it, then obviously God wants us to obey it. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. There can be within us a violent inner resentment and anger, wanting revenge and retribution. And as believers, we are not to entertain or entice or incite that kind of anger. We're to discern and recognize. How many of you have ever heard this phrase, well, they just push my button? How many of you have buttons? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why you have the button? And begin asking, why is that button, when pushed, provoking me to anger? The Bible also says that we're to be slow to anger. James 1, 19-20, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Listen to verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, it needs to be noted that anger is not your primary emotion. In other words, it's not the first emotion that comes out. Anger is present only after other emotions have triggered it. Anger responds to hurt, to frustration, to fear, to lack of control. And so when we get angry, we have to back up and say, why? Why am I so angry about that? That's why we slow down. 
Is it because of injustice? Is it because of my lack of control? Do I, do I think I deserve better? Is it because people are going to see me differently than I want them to see me? Now, what's really interesting is there's always in life a stimulus and a response. Stimulus, something happens. Time happens, and then a response. And we see this modeled in Jesus' life. Now, there's some interesting things that happen in chapters 11 and verses 11 and 12. Scholars aren't completely in agreement to it, but most scholars believe that Jesus modeled this stimulus response uh, thing to anger. And here's why. In verse 11 of chapter 11, it says that Jesus enters Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around, went back to Bethany. Meaning that he came in and saw the sights, smelled the smell, heard the sounds, was familiar with everything that was happening, and went back to Bethany. Then the next day, verse 12 says, he entered back into Jerusalem, into the temple. Jesus never reacted. He responded. And that's how we are to deal with anger, slow to anger. And because of that, he was able to keep his temper in check. I love this quote that says this, Swallowing angry words is much easier than eating them. The next time you sense this anger coming up, ask yourself about your response. Is this really worth it? Am I going to make a fool of myself? Am I going to regret what I'm about to do? Am I going to hurt someone I love? More importantly, is Jesus going to be pleased with my response? In our culture and in our world, we live in a stress-filled, harried, and hectic culture. And because of that, it seems that anger is the climate of the day. Everybody's angry. Watch the news. Republicans are angry at Democrats. Democrats are angry at Republicans. If you don't think like me, I'm angry with you. That's the culture we live in. And it doesn't need to be in the church. Another quote I like in regards to keeping our temper and anger in check is this. The greatest cure for anger is delay. How many of you grew up when, or, or maybe have heard this phrase, well, just count to ten. Count, count to ten. And some of you go, five, ten. And you're... <laughs> why, why do we delay? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Why? To obey Christ. That's why we delay. And when we delay, the Lord will help us avoid sin. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Here's the visual picture of that. You're all in a race, running towards the prize. And when we have anger holding on to us, it's as if Satan has our foot and we can't run the race as we're supposed to run it. So what's the application? In this passage in Mark, Jesus is about cleansing the temple. He's about exposing what is wrong, purifying what is unholy, 
overturning distractions, getting rid of selfish pursuits, acknowledging shortcuts and conveniences that have pulled away people from experiencing God, His presence, His love, and His dwelling. So what's the application? 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is the temple of God? The house of the Holy Spirit that you are not your own. Jesus wants to do the same thing in my life that he did in the temple that day. I'm not saying Jesus is angry at us. But I'm saying that Jesus wants us to acknowledge shortcuts and conveniences and the right to be right. He wants to overturn anything that hinders my view of God in the right way. I don't know, have no clue what this story and the Spirit are doing in your heart. I don't know your situations. I don't know your relationships. So I'm just going to ask some questions for you to ask yourselves before the Lord. How do I normally respond to events or people or situations that anger me? How am I dealing with my anger these days? And would God call it righteous? What is one situation I'm now facing where my anger has been initiated? Have you and God talked about the root cause? The hurt, the fear, the injustice, the unmet expectation. Maybe it's abandonment. And the question is, what is God calling you to do about it? How is he wanting me to respond? Ask God this, what do you want to overturn in my life so that I may experience the fullness of you? Am I seeking to be right or righteous? Is this life and situation about me or God's glory? Are my responses causing others to see God for who he is? I want to close by going back to the fig tree. Jesus approached this fig tree full of leaves and no fruit. One author said in verse 14, the fig tree was cursed not for being barren but for being fake. And an author said this, This is the way some professing Christians appear. They look real. They talk like the real thing. They can even be in the same building as real Christians. Even the texture of their lives appears similar to the real thing. But Christianity is much more than just believing the right things, looking like what other people think Christians look like. It is more than just being at church in a church building when it's open. It's more than just sitting in the church worship. It is to be fruitful. The fig tree had a purpose, a calling, but it was more concerned about show and glamour than being productive. And sometimes in our society, we can take anger and go, eh, I deserve to be angry. I'm entitled to think this way and feel this way. It's more about how I appear than what Jesus can produce in me. And Jesus can lead us to respond correctly and biblically in every situation. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead for the believer resides in the believer. To take every thought captive, to be angry and sin not. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for this passage. Thank you for your perfect right response. Thank you for modeling it 
for us. And God, I have no idea what's going on in the hearts and minds of people right now in relationship to this topic and this story and this passage, but you do. And God, as we prayed at the beginning of the message, I pray that you would make clear to them, make clear to them the things that need to be dealt with and the response that needs to be had for your glory, for our good, and for the world's benefit. And we trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.